0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over open fracture management from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Starting with a brief summary, open fractures are fractures with direct communication to the external environment. Diagnosis is made clinically by assessing the size and nature of the external wound as well as obtaining radiographs of the bone at the location of the soft tissue injury. Treatment depends on the location of the fracture, but generally requires immediate IV antibiotics and urgent irrigation and debridement followed by surgical fixation as needed. In this episode, we will discuss the epidemiology, etiology, classification systems, clinical presentation, imaging findings, treatment options, treatment techniques, complications of these injuries, and the overall prognosis of open fractures. Starting with the epidemiology, the incidence of open fractures is relatively common, with 30.7 open fractures occurring per 100,000 persons per year. Demographically, open fractures occur at an average age of 45 years old, and most commonly occur in the tibia and the finger phalanx. Regarding the etiology of open fractures, the pathophysiology and mechanism of injury is usually related to a high-energy trauma resulting in an inside-out mechanism of open fracture. Notably, open fractures are often associated with other injuries in up to 30% of cases and Compartment Syndrome cannot be ruled out as the presence of an open wound does not preclude the occurrence of Compartment Syndrome in the injured limb. The classification systems for open fractures are the Gastillo and Schoen classifications. The Gastillo classification classifies open injuries into types 1, 2, 3A, 3B, or 3C injuries. In the abridged version of a Gastillo classification, Type 1 injuries are wounds less than 1 centimeter with minimal contamination or muscle damage. Type 2 injuries are wounds 1 to 10 centimeters with moderate soft tissue injuries. Type 3A injuries are wounds usually greater than 10 centimeters resulting from high energy with extensive soft tissue damage that are contaminated, but these injuries have adequate tissue for flap coverage. Note. That open fractures that are farm injuries are automatically at least a gastillo grade 3A injury. Gastillo type 3B injuries are injuries with extensive periosteal stripping and a wound requiring soft tissue coverage with a rotational or free flap. Type 3C injuries are vascular injuries requiring repair, regardless of the degree of the soft tissue injury. It is important to note that the most accurate way to grade open fractures is by an intraoperative examination. The gastillo classification is important as antibiotic indications changed by gastillo types. For gastillo type 1 and 2 injuries, first-generation cephalosporins suffice. For gastillo type 3 injuries, first-generation cephalosporins and an aminoglycoside are traditionally recommended, but there is controversy about this regimen. If the open fracture occurs in conjunction with a farm injury or in suspected bowel contamination, a first-generation cephalosporin with an aminoglycoside plus penicillin should be used. The penicillin is added for clostridial coverage. Antibiotics should be initiated as soon as possible, with an increased infection rate being noted when antibiotics are delayed greater than 3 hours from the time of the injury. Antibiotics should be continued for 24 to 72 hours after the irrigation and debridement. Remember that a tetanus booster should be given if the patient is not up to date and has not had a booster in the last five years. The SHERN classification for open fractures classifies these injuries into grades 1, 2, 3, or 4. Grade 1 injuries are open fractures with a small puncture wound without skin contusion. There's negligible bacterial contamination and a low energy fracture pattern. Grade 2 injuries are open injuries with small skin and soft tissue contusions. Moderate contamination is identified and variable fracture patterns can be seen. Grade 3 injuries are open fractures with heavy contamination, extensive soft tissue damage, and are often associated with arterial or neural injuries. And grade 4 injuries are open fractures with incomplete or complete amputations. On clinical presentation, a thorough history should be obtained, noting information regarding the mechanism, location, and timing of the injury. A thorough physical examination should also be performed with inspection and assessment of the soft tissue damage, noting that the size and nature of the external wound may not necessarily reflect the damage to the deeper structures. A neurovascular exam should be performed, and if there is concern for vascular insult, ankle brachial index should be obtained. A normal ratio is greater than 0.9. Vascular surgery should be consulted, and an angiogram is warranted, if an ABI less than 0.9 is obtained. If there is concern for a traumatic arthrotomy, consider performing a saline load test or a CT scan. Some studies now show that a CT scan is more sensitive than a saline load test for detecting traumatic arthrotomies of the knee. Regarding imaging, it is important to note that radiographs should be obtained, including the joint above and below the fracture site. A CT scan may be indicated for periarticular injuries and for the evaluation of the traumatic arthrotomy of the knee. Moving on to discuss the treatment of open fractures, the initial part of therapy is non-operative with urgent IV antibiotics, tetanus prophylaxis, and extremity stabilization and dressings. This is indicated as the initial treatment for all open fractures. And remember that a soft tissue wound in proximity to a fracture should be treated as an open fracture until proven otherwise. Multidisciplinary training of open fracture management has been associated with decreased timing to antibiotic administration. Note that antibiotic type is indicated by the injury pattern and location as discussed previously. The operative aspect of treatment begins with irrigation and debridement, temporary fracture stabilization, local antibiotic administration, and soft tissue coverage. Irrigation and debridement should be pursued as soon as possible, and it may be beneficial to perform this within six hours in terms of decreasing infection risk. The ideal time to soft tissue coverage is controversial, but most centers perform this within five to seven days. Regarding the infection rates in these situations, infection rates of open fracture depend on the zone of injury, periosteal stripping, and any delays in treatment. The incidence of fracture-related infection range from less than 1% in grade one open fractures to 30% in grade 3 fractures. Regarding the definitive reconstruction and fracture fixation, this is indicated once soft tissue coverage is obtained and an adequate sterility is achieved. Outcomes of definitive treatment with internal fixation leads to significantly decreased time to union, improved functional outcomes, and decreased time in the hospital compared to those definitively fixed with external fixation. Now let's delve a little further into these techniques. First, let's review some details on the urgent IV antibiotic therapy, tetanus prophylaxis, and extremity stabilization with dressings. Regarding antibiotic timing, these should be initiated as soon as possible, and studies show an increased infection rate when antibiotics are delayed for more than three hours from the time of injury. These should be continued for 24 hours after the initial injury if the wound is able to be closed primarily and should be continued for 24 hours after the final closure if the wound is not closed during the initial surgical debridement, and 48 hours for type 3 wounds. Again, with respect to the gastillo classification, gastillo type 1 and 2 injuries receive a first-generation cephalosporin, or clindamycin or vancomycin can also be used if allergies exist. And for a gastillo type 3 injury, a first-generation cephalosporin should be used with an aminoglycoside. Some institutions elect to use vancomycin in addition to cefepime, however. Farm injuries or injuries with heavy contamination or possible bowel contamination should have high-dose penicillin added for anaerobic coverage of clostridium. Some special considerations for antibiotics include that for freshwater wounds, fluoroquinolones or a third or fourth generation cephalosporin should be included, and for saltwater wounds, doxycycline and ceftazidime or a fluoroquinolone should be used. Regarding tetanus prophylaxis, this should be initiated immediately in the emergency room or in the trauma bay. Two forms of prophylaxis exist, toxoid and immunoglobulin. Regarding toxoid, 0.5 milliliters is given regardless of age. Regarding immunoglobulin, patients less than five years old receive 75 units, patients five to 10 years old receive 125 units, and patients greater than 10 years old receive 250 units. The toxoid and the immunoglobulin should be given intramuscularly with two different syringes in two different locations. Remember, the guidelines for tetanus prophylaxis depend on three factors. Complete or incomplete vaccination history, which is defined as three doses of the tetanus prophylaxis, date of the most recent vaccination, and the severity of the wound. Regarding extremity stabilization and dressings, Stabilization of the extremity should be accomplished with splint, brace, or traction for temporary stabilization. This decreases pain, minimizes soft tissue trauma, and prevents the disruption of clots. Removal of gross debris should be performed without removal of bone fragments. Sterile, saline-soaked dressing should be placed on the wound. There is little evidence to support aggressive irrigation or irrigation with antiseptic solution in the emergency department, as this can push debris further into the wound. Irrigation and debridement with temporary fracture stabilization, local antibiotic administration, and soft tissue coverage should then follow. Regarding timing of irrigation and debridement, a recent meta-analysis known as the Goliath study has recommended debridement within 24 hours to minimize the risk of infection for type 3 fractures. But it should be noted that irrigation and debridement should occur within 12 hours for type 3B open tibia fractures. Stage debridement and irrigation should be performed every 24 to 48 hours as needed. Regarding the technique for IND, the incision used can be an extension of the wound proximally and distally in line with the extremity to adequately expose the open fracture. Irrigation should follow with studies having shown that low-pressure bulb irrigation is less expensive than high-pressure pulse lavage and has no difference in infection rates or union rates. Studies have also been performed comparing saline versus saline irrigation with Castile soap versus an antibiotic solution and have shown that saline with Castile soap had decreased primary wound healing problems when compared to antibiotic solutions. Note that on average, 3 liters of saline solution are used for each successive gastillotype. In other words, 9 liters of solution would be used for a type 3 injury. Regarding debridement, thorough debridement of devitalized tissue is critical to prevent deep infections, and bony fragments without soft tissue attachments should be removed. At the time of initial debridement, temporary fracture stabilization should also be performed. External fixation is the temporary initial treatment of choice for the majority of high-energy open fractures of the lower extremity. Regarding local antibiotic administration, this is indicated if significantly contaminated wounds are present with large soft tissue defects, or large bony defects. In this technique, beads are made by mixing methyl methacrylate with heat-stable antibiotic powders. Vancomycin and tobramycin are most commonly used. Regarding soft tissue coverage at initial irrigation and debridement, early soft tissue coverage or wound closure is ideal. The timing of flap coverage for open tibial fractures remains somewhat controversial, but less than 7 days is desired. There is an increased risk of infection beyond 7 days. Notably, the odds of infection increase by 16% for each day beyond day 7. Early studies demonstrated an increased infection with delay beyond 72 hours. However, recent studies such as the LEAP study do not support this finding. It is important to note here that studies have not shown any statistical difference between the rate of infection when ORAF is performed before fasciotomy closure, at fasciotomy closure, or after fasciotomy closure. Obtaining soft tissue coverage is important prior to proceeding with bone grafting if needed. Bone grafting may occur after the wound is clean and closed. Negative pressure wound therapy may be utilized during the debridement period until definitive coverage can be achieved, but remember that there is an increased risk of infection if the wound is left open greater than seven days. Once soft tissue coverage has been obtained, definitive reconstruction and fracture fixation may occur. If there is no critical bony defect, then open reduction internal fixation or intramedullary treatment may be undertaken depending on the fracture location and morphology. If there is a critical bone defect, there are various techniques that may be used to address this. The Masculet technique, distraction osteogenesis, or a vascularized bone flap or transfer. Touching briefly on the Masculet technique, otherwise known as an induced membrane technique, this is a two-stage technique. The first stage of the Masculi technique is irrigation and debridement, placement of a cement spacer, and temporizing fixation. The second stage of the Masculi technique is placement of bone graft into the induced membrane and definitive fixation. Studies show an optimal time frame for bone grafting to be four to six weeks after placement of the cement spacer. Complications of open fractures include surgical site infections, osteomyelitis, neurovascular injuries, and compartment syndrome. As previously mentioned, the rate of surgical site infections in open fractures varies by the grade of open fracture. Fracture Fracture-related infections range from less than 1% in grade 1 open fractures to 30% in grade 3 open fractures. Regarding osteomyelitis, there is an incidence between one8 to 27%, depending on the bone involved and the grade or fracture type. The tibia is the most common site of post-surgical osteomyelitis following surgical treatment of open fractures. The risk factors for osteomyelitis include a blast mechanism of injury, acute surgical amputation, a delay in definitive soft tissue coverage greater than seven days, and a higher grade Gastillo-Anderson classification injury. Lastly, regarding the prognosis of open fractures, the priority should be to minimize the risk of infection, with debridement recommended to be performed within 24 hours for all type 3 fractures and within 12 hours for type 3B open tibia fractures. Contamination with dirt and debris and devitalization of the soft tissues increases the risk of infection and other complications, and note that infection rates are higher in open injuries due to blunt trauma compared to penetrating trauma. Now that we've gotten a general overview of this topic, Let's review a few questions to see how this material has been tested in the past. Question 1. A 25-year-old male involved in a motorcycle accident sustains a grade 3B open tibia fracture with obvious gross contamination and devitalized tissue present. After an initial adequate debridement of non-viable tissue, which of the following irrigation methods and devices should be used? Is it 1? antibiotic solution applied by low pressure gravity flow device Two antibiotic solution applied by high-pressure pulsatile flow device Three saline solution applied by low-pressure gravity flow device Four saline solution applied by high-pressure pulsatile flow device or five antibiotic solution applied by high-pressure pulsatile flow device followed by low-pressure gravity flow device. The correct answer is 3, saline solution applied by low-pressure gravity flow device. Initial wound treatment is critical in the treatment of open fractures and contaminated wounds. This patient presents with a type 3b open tibia fracture with obvious gross contamination and devitalized tissue. Systemic antibiotics and tetanus prophylaxis should be administered immediately upon arrival and the lower extremities should be splinted while the remaining trauma workup takes place. Once cleared, this injury should be adequately debrided of all devitalized tissue and subsequently irrigated with the saline solution to reduce the bacterial count. Some evidence suggests that high pressure pulsatile lavage damages bone structures and disrupts soft tissue. In an animal model, Hassinger et al. showed that high-pressure pulsatile lavage caused deeper penetration of bacteria and results in greater bacterial retention in the soft tissues when compared with low-pressure lavage. Owens et al. in a sheet model of contaminated soft tissue compared low and high-pressure lavage with normal saline solution, bacitracin solution, castile soap, and benzalconium chloride. At 48 hours, the group treated by low-pressure lavage and saline solutions showed the lowest rebound in bacterial counts. Question 2. What would be the expected effect of implementing a multidisciplinary training program for the treatment of open fractures? Is it 1. Increased likelihood of early total care for multi-trauma patients? 2. Increased time to evaluation by a trauma surgeon? 3. Decreased time to antibiotic administration, 4. Decreased length of hospital stay, or 5. Expedited surgical clearance. The correct answer is 3. Decreased time to antibiotic administration. The implementation of a multidisciplinary training program for the treatment of open fractures has been associated with reduced timing to antibiotic administration. Open fractures are typically the result of a high-energy injury that causes the bone to communicate with the external environment. These injuries require immediate IV antibiotic prophylaxis followed by urgent irrigation and debridement to minimize infectious complications. A delay of greater than three hours to antibiotic administration has been associated with increased infection rates. A multidisciplinary training program for the treatment of open fractures has been associated with decreased timing to IV antibiotic administration. Harper et al. performed a retrospective study of 117 patients presenting with open fractures to a level 1 trauma center. They reported that patients that presented as a trauma activation received antibiotics at an average of 14 minutes from arrival, whereas open fractures that presented as a non-trauma visit received antibiotics at an average of 53 minutes from arrival. They concluded that patients received antibiotics significantly faster for open fractures when evaluated by a trauma-trained surgeon. Johnson et al. performed a retrospective cohort study evaluating the effect of a multidisciplinary training group for the treatment of open fractures. They reported a significant decrease in time to antibiotic administration after implementation of the protocol, 123.1 minutes compared to 35.7 minutes. They concluded that the multidisciplinary protocol significantly reduced the time to antibiotic prophylaxis administration for patients with open fractures. Collins et al. performed a retrospective cohort study of 298 open fractures before and after implementation of an open fracture performance improvement program. They reported a decrease in time to IV antibiotic administration from 70.5 minutes to 32.4 minutes. Also. There was a decreased time to physician evaluation from 6.5 minutes to 4.5 minutes. They concluded that a multidisciplinary improvement program decreased the timing of IV antibiotic administration for open fractures. Regarding the incorrect answers, for answer 1, an increased likelihood of early total care for multi-trauma patients, this is incorrect as multi-trauma patients would benefit from damage control orthopedic care. As such, a multidisciplinary training program would not affect the rate of early total care in multi-trauma patients. Regarding answer 2, increased time to evaluation by a trauma surgeon. This is incorrect, as multidisciplinary training programs for the treatment of open fractures does not affect the time to evaluation by a trauma surgeon. Answer 4, decreased length of hospital stay. This is incorrect, as length of hospital stay has not been associated with multidisciplinary training for the management of open fractures. And answer 5, expedited surgical clearance, is incorrect as the timing of surgical clearance has not been associated with multidisciplinary training for the management of open fractures. Last question. A 32-year-old man sustains a shotgun blast injury to his hand 14 hours prior to presentation and presents with a severely wounded hand from a high-velocity gunshot injury and multiple metacarpal fractures. The on-call orthopedic resident is consulted immediately after he arrives. Which of the following statements regarding the treatment of this patient is most accurate? Answer 1, early debridement and irrigation with normal saline is just as effective as irrigation with betadine solution. Answer 2, irrigation with high-pressure lavage is less expensive and superior to low-pressure lavage. 3, the patient should receive tetanus prophylaxis regardless of vaccination status. 4. Patients should receive gentamicin alone. Or 5. The proper technique involves limiting debridement to the zone of injury to prevent further damage and contamination. The correct answer is 1. Early debridement and irrigation with normal saline is just as effective as irrigation with betadine solution. This patient is presenting with open multiple metacarpal fractures in the setting of a severe blast injury from a low-velocity, high-energy gunshot. Of the above, the most accurate statement is that early debridement and irrigation with normal saline is just as effective as irrigation with betadine solution. The most important factor in the management of severely contaminated open fracture wounds is early thorough debridement. While previous studies have shown that initial debridement should occur within 6 hours of the injury... More recent studies have not demonstrated a significant correlation within that urgent time frame, but rather recommend initial debridement as soon as possible within 24 hours, followed by a second look delayed debridement in wounds that have questionable tissue viability. There is limited evidence to support aggressive irrigation or irrigation with an antiseptic solution in the emergency room. Time to antibiotic administration has also been demonstrated to have significant effect on decreasing infection risk, and as such... The immediate administration of antibiotics in the emergency room is recommended. Ordog et al. investigated infections in minor gunshot wounds. They reported a less than 2% infection rate related to minor gunshot wounds and increased complications when a prolonged period occurred between the time of injury and the initial treatment. They concluded that while wound debridement and antibiotics are often unnecessary in minor uncomplicated gunshot wounds, they are beneficial in patients who have sustained multiple injuries gross wound contamination, significant tissue devitalization, large wounds, or treatment delays. Tian et al. investigated the quantitative bacteriological study of the wound track in the hind legs of dogs. They reported that as the time increased from 6 to 12 to 24 hours, so did the number of aerobic and anaerobic bacteria in devitalized muscle tissue. They emphasized the importance of early debridement and treatment to minimize the bacterial contamination. Turker et al. reviewed the management of hand gunshot wounds. They reported that comprehensive information regarding the management of gunshot wounds and functional recovery of the hand is lacking in the literature. Thus, they recommended early debridement, antibiotic treatment, reconstruction, and rehabilitation to offer patients the best chance for full functional recovery. Pereira et al. reviewed the outcomes of complex gunshot wounds to the hand and wrist. They reported that during gunshots, the temporary cavitational effect might create a vacuum that can pull foreign materials, including dirt and bacteria, into the wound, potentially leading to wound infections. They observed that shotguns cause higher rates of infection when compared to low-velocity guns. They recommended that while minor wounds do not require aggressive debridement, early debridement is recommended in severely wounded hands, and that all devitalized tissue except bone fragments be removed. Regarding the incorrect answers, answer 2 is incorrect, as irrigation with high-pressure lavage is more expensive and not superior to low-pressure lavage. Answer 3 is incorrect, as tetanus prophylaxis should be administered based on immunization history. For this patient, no prophylaxis is needed as his last dose was given within 5 years. Answer 4 is incorrect, as for this patient with a severely wounded hand, a first-generation cephalosporin and aminoglycoside like gentamicin would be sufficient for antibiotic coverage, but gentamicin alone would not be sufficient. And answer 5 was incorrect, as a limited debridement would not be sufficient, and the proper technique involves extending the debridement beyond the zone of injury to ensure good eradication of debris and bacteria. That's all for this review about open fracture management. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or the mobile app while going through the topics. If you've gotten any value so far from the OrthoBullets podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you are not already, please be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.